the demons spoke to people one by one, promising personal benefits. They made enticing pledges of escape, supplies, or safe harbor, breaking individuals away from the collective, turning them against their kin. These promises left no traces, except in the involuntary reactions of those who listened. Their symptoms included lethargy, secrecy, and paranoid sweating as they surrendered to full possession. The demons broke and replaced their promises, intensifying and dashing feelings of hope until their subjects lost touch with all reality, experiencing demonic visions instead. Tactics and Practice Podcast Dobrodan, everyone, and welcome to the Tactics and Practice Podcast, the audio extension of the Axioma Institute for Contemporary Arts discursive program of the same name, focusing on investigative art, society, and new technologies. Each year, Tactics and Practice focuses on a specific theme. The 14th edition, held in Ljubljana in the spring of 2023, was dedicated to scale. I'm Nea Berger, and I followed the entire program, interviewing some of its protagonists for this channel's first mini-series of four episodes. If you happen to miss the previous two episodes, the first one was with writer and independent researcher Laura Tripaldi, and the second with artist Nestor Sire and anthropologist Stefan Kuhn. You can find them wherever you're listening to this one. What we heard at the beginning of this episode is an audio excerpt from Onset, a video installation I got to visit last March at Axioma Project Space in Ljubljana. And for the third episode of Scale series, I sat down with the authors of the installation. With me are Anna Engelhardt and Mark Zinkevich. Welcome, Anna and Mark. Hi. Hello, thank you. So perhaps before we begin, I should point out that the two artists work under pseudonyms and that Mark uses an effect to disguise his voice. I don't particularly like to introduce others, uh, so I would love to just give you the platform to introduce yourselves to our listeners in any way you prefer. And also maybe tell us a bit about your particular research fields, what you're most interested in, what you've been up to. My background comes from this kind of investigatory art practice, and uh, I usually do art projects that are kind of a weird <laughs> investigations of sorts. Um, usually work with CGI. Recently with Mark, I got very interested in how to make investigations that would be more um, speaking more deeply of like effective nature of uh, what's going on rather than just digging for this kind of more objective data or information. So that's also the part of the project that we did with Mark, the onset. Maybe also just briefly about my kind of previous works and the onset. So one of my previous films was um, Adversarial Infrastructure. It was kind of a deep fake CGI investigation of uh, Russian annexation of Crimea. Um, in this work, I tried to look into this kind of eerie qualities of the 
Crimean Bridge, the mega infrastructure Russia constructed to cement its annexation of Crimea. And in this new work with Mark, we did this extensive digging of Russian military bases in Syria, Belarus, and Ukraine, trying to find how exactly Russian invasions are made possible. And in the film, we combine the CGI, medieval demonology, and um, satellite uh, investigation to uncover how Russian military force, akin to demonic force, is um, possessing sovereign states. So this is shortly about me, uh, Mark. Hello. So again, uh, my background is in cultural studies and area studies. But over the last years, we started working with Anna on this project in connection with Russian imperialism. And uh, as Anna said, we started with a lot of digging, just sort of uh, in an investigative way, digging data, looking into infrastructures about how the Russian imperialism works. Then we sort of looked for a way to uh, find, a, find a better way to present the results of the research so as to not only produce a wall of text that would present all the data about electricity, for example, as the film deals with electricity infrastructures, uh, but then through uh, through making a film. And uh, a lot of my background has to do with monster studies and uh, demonology. And uh, by combining these two, these two very different approaches, we uh, sort of created the onset film. Uh, yeah. Thanks so much to you both for presenting the general concept of onset as well. But I'd love to hear a bit more about each of your individual research fields before we move on to the ways of how you combine them into this amazing project, which now that I think about it, shouldn't be called a project because it's basically a resistance movement. So I would I would love to hear... Mark, from you first, maybe if we start with a bit of a more relaxed talk. Well, is it relaxed? <laughs> I don't know, but <laughs> demonology, right? Mm -hmm. What do you think would be important for people listening to this episode to know about demonology and monster studies and some of its concepts before we start talking about connecting those concepts to infrastructure and colonialism? Uh, monster studies in general of something like a theoretical optics, basically, or a theoretical lens. And uh, this is one of the best ways to work with the idea of the other, uh, because historically monsters um, were summoned to uh, represent in a specific, like, argumented way a specific feature of a specific group that is to be othered in one way of, or another. And uh, so monster studies really encompassed in themselves all the possible ways of the representations of otherness that are available. But with demonology, it's uh, slightly different. So while I would introduce this distinction, it might be like oversimplification, but I think it grasps the idea that while monster studies are mostly about the other, so this is the limit condition of the other, of a different person, Demonology could be understood as something like the limit condition of the self, uh, because monster a priori is really fleshy. Monsters, most of the time, they stay outside. If they are to cut through the border of your body, they would usually bite you. But with demons, it works a little bit different, because demons usually, if they are to penetrate the body inside, they would do it in like as a spirit, something like a possessive spirit. 
So both of these ways are basically the ways of exploring the limit either of the by or, or the other or the limit of the self. And um, yeah, I'm thinking about how to really make it any more graspable, but uh, otherwise it's... No, Mark, that was perfectly graspable. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting that you bring up this distinction between an attack from the outside versus a possession of the entire spirit from the inside. And this kind of reminds me of the shift from discipline to control, as in Deleuze's interpretation of Foucault's work. So this shift from discipline as inflicted from the outside by institutions and the transition to power permeating from the very being of its subjects from the inside and mm-hmm. what I'd like to ask Anna in relation to that, with no obligation whatsoever to actually reference the post-structuralist, maybe it's just uh, something to go off of. So first of all, if you can teach us about how we can recognize a colonial infrastructure, mm-hmm. so what some key principles are, and then how does colonial infrastructure regulate life, uh, yeah. as Mark mentioned, from the inside with this possessiveness? So what are its biopolitics? How does it invade a population from the inside? Yeah, I think it's very, thank you very much for your question. It's really exciting to think with you about this. I think it really resonated with me, your kind of references to post-structuralist thought and the ideas of power there. The embodiment of power, the like internalization of power is obviously has been a big revolution in humanities and critical theory. I think what is kind of interesting to think through with our work is, I think unlike post-structuralism, we try to think about this kind of embodiment or internalization of power as still being able to distinguish between the invading force and the body that has been invaded or like the organism or structure that is under invasion. Because the one of the core elements of our work is we try and spot this invasive force to actually be able to exercise it in the end, to actually cut connection to it and get rid of it um, as a kind of end result which is not something that is entirely possible if you think about power in the proper Foucauldian terms, right? Foucault would laugh at you (laughs) if you would uh, propose to get rid of power. Um, But I think it's very different, right, in the colonial context, because in the colonial context, there is a sovereign state, right, that has, let's say, recognized boundary. So it's very important to trace the process of how invasion started, right, hence the title and set of the work. So if you see how exactly the invasion started and how exactly it took place, then you can locate um, those nodes of power and cut them or sabotage them or separate them from the rest of the host to then get rid of them. So this is kind of the main difference that I would say is between the kind of post-structuralist understanding of power and the um, colonial infrastructures as we try to talk about them in this film and also in our work in general. And also with Mark, we co-authored a text that was predating the film and also the full-scale invasion where we're discussing this Russian colonial infrastructure that Russia created in Belarus. And the way uh, we're looking into this infrastructure was very kind of similar to the distinction that I'm highlighting, because basically, uh, Mark, I'm talking now obviously about the Astovets nuclear power plant, and the way 
Russia constructed this power plant was based on the promise. So this is a nuclear power plant constructed by Russia on the Belarus territory. And Russia constructed this nuclear power plant promising Belarus its energy independence. But obviously, as we know, <laughs> Russia operates. It turned out 180 degrees opposite, totally enmeshing Belarus into a Russian power grid. But it's interesting to think about those moments, right, to actually materialize these infrastructural connections, to then see that it's not this power is not something that that exists in an abstract. It's something that is radiated from specific material structures, like let's say this nuclear power plant or a military base. It is basically like this architecture that kind of glows with power. So then if you actually sabotage this architecture, the power doesn't have this source of energy and then it runs out of energy and supposedly gets back <laughs> to its internal position, gets outside of the sovereign state that it tried to take over. That's super interesting. And I was wondering, Mark, if you wanted to start to explain this analogy or analogy again is really not the term I want to be using. Maybe we could say this discourse you decided to use to talk about discourse is again, packed with uh, all sorts of theoretical concepts and meanings. I guess it's hard to pick a word, but for the sake of Calling it something, maybe we can say discourse. Yeah. So when we're talking about it in terms of this relation to demonology and the host slash parasite relationship, mm -hmm. what would be the umbilical cord in this sense? And how can we recognize it? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How can we cut it? Yeah, I want to start with like this analogy that Usually, when people are promised uh, something by the demonic forces, there's some sort of superpowers that they can obtain, or their like wishes to be materialized, they usually made to sign a contract with the demon. This is the very known scenario, and this is pretty much what was the case with Belarus. So, while Belarus expected to uh, have this impulse for the development of the industry on the basis of Russia, they were offered okay, uranium, this resource with a lot of power that can later be used for the development. So eventually they sign a contract, but then something something happens because when you sign the contract with the demon, demon knows, demon even allows you to negotiate all the, all the aspects of this contract, but then demon always expects that a human will miscalculate something. And on the basis of that, the demon will corrupt the soul. And this is pretty much how it happened. And uh, another thing is that while trying to find re reason for the construction of it or reason for the functioning of it, you stumble upon uh, certain lips. So, for example, if you think about the ways to transport this energy of the imperial infrastructures, uh, they would seem to be like superficial, not really profitable. These infrastructures, most of the time, they are not even profitable. There are many think of, things of them that are just wrong. Uh, that makes it difficult to understand why this infrastructure exists in the first place. But the sole function of uh, imperial infrastructure sometimes is their mere existence is already something that grants power of one state over another state. And uh, one of the such things is uh, this broken logics that we've noticed. 
in in order to then find uh, why the infrastructure really exists you have uh, you have to start uh, with this investigative approach like seeing what is there and then at some point you find this umbilical cord which then uh, sort of sheds the light on why the infrastructure exists and w- what its main function is and I actually wanted to add maybe quickly about the umbilical cord. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for bringing up this matter for us because um, this conversation about umbilical cord is one of the core for the film and for our practice, I would say in general, right? Because when I was answering previously, I was talking about separation, right? I was talking about host and the demon being separate entities. But that is interesting, right? When you flip your perception and you look not from the uh, perspective that I highlighted, but from the perspective, let's say, of uh, military discourse, um, you're going to see that um, a military bases, the main focus of the film, are usually portrayed as this kind of absolutely disconnected forts. They are castles or forts in the middle of nowhere. Think about it as a Mars colony, right? They're usually portrayed as those structures that are able to exist absolutely autonomously from the landscape that they usually exist in, usually hostile landscape for obvious reasons. So when we started digging into that, uh, we realized that this military imaginary serves a specific purpose, right? It's uh, essentially a discourse that aims to conceal the very fragile dependency that exists there between the possessing force and the host. And this is very similar to how demonic possession is portrayed not in the kind of exorcist type of films, but in the films that talk about possession as a pregnancy. We talk specifically about the demonic horror that deals with the victim that either bears the child of Antichrist, very common scenario in the films, or if you talk about possession, but more as a kind of biological possession as an alien, you're also going to see that the alien offspring is dependent on the body of the host. So we're trying to find what is this balance between this kind of imaginary total separation and the reality of a possessing force being within the body or within the structure of something else. What is the actual connection of something that is trying to destroy an organism from within and this organism? So in that process, we found those critical nodes of connection. In military discourse, they're usually called the critical infrastructure. And those nodes of connection in our film are electricity substations. So the umbilical cord um, that we're talking about in the film is an electricity wire. It's an electrical wire that connects neighboring electricity substation and feeds the military base. But obviously you can extend this uh, analogy further, right? Like it doesn't have to be specifically about electricity wire, but this is a more kind of general conversation about this uh, complex connection between the host and the possessor. And uh, if I could add that there is an element of synchronicity, as unexplained from the beginning, there is this idea of disconnected forts, but uh, if we precisely look at it at the larger scale that we could see in the energy systems, they always need to function in synchronicity. And it is the same, the same very logic as in all the binary opposition logics. In the binaries, one thing takes the place of norm, the other 
necessarily takes a place of uh, being uh, some sort of deviation. So when we talk about energy infrastructure, it's the same when one country synchronizes the energy grip with another one. The smaller country, so to say, has to synchronize or adapt to the function of this, the metropolia. And uh, this is precisely how the oppression happens. And this is what allows to even occupy territories with mere electric cord, because just the connection to the overall system and synchronization with the metropolia already allows occupation of other territories like this Chernobyl NPP. Uh, but it's also very, very material because it is the very infrastructure, which is the, the structure of the occupation, which is a tool of the occupation. No, I'm just enchanted by listening to you two. Maybe I don't <laughs> have to ask questions. You can just go <laughs> off of each other. No, but really, it already brought us to so many interesting places. But I guess at this point, maybe I'd like to add to the discussion this topic this concept of scale that we're focusing on in this note of tactics and practice. And within our discussion today, I want to ask you about two things. One is how does the scale of the infrastructure itself, this almost unimaginable scale, if we're talking about a Russian neo-colonial context, just the sheer hugeness of it, impact the subjects that it permeates, regulates, or it's a parasite too. And the second question in regards to scale being, how was it for you as researchers working with open source materials to even begin to map out this enormous infrastructure? Yeah, thank you very much. I mean, the question of scale is extremely important for us, right? And uh, on the one hand, it is important, as I've kind of mentioned briefly before, in this kind of trying to find the point of vulnerability in something that is trying to conceal the parts of the structure in its vastness and sprawlingness. But also the scale was important because what we did when we were working on the onset is we were trying to develop this kind of or more verbalize this new structure, this new genre of infrastructural horror. And uh, what we mean with infrastructural horror is this idea to embed in the aesthetic qualities of the infrastructure the foreboding of infrastructures of dispossession, of invasion, of extraction. Now, we try to, because one of the functions of the colonial infrastructure is not just extra to extract, to, let's say, lithium or to extract oil or et cetera, et cetera, but it, to disconnect the violence that it produces during that extraction and the goods or the high quality of life that it allows for in the metropole. So let's say uh, in the context of Russia, people in Moscow would have their flat whites and uh, their parties and their raves and their exhibitions and their biennials, while people who live in the site of extraction of oil would be suffering from the health consequences for from impo impossibility to get employment, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and this disconnection between violence, the landscape of violence, and the landscape of this kind of abundance, is allowed not just by the scale of infrastructure in question, but also by, by its, its static qualities. Usually, 
this infrastructure is tried to be made or at least presented in a way that it would appear neutral or that would have aesthetic qualities of progress. Like if you think about uh, white, uh, sleek structures, steel surfaces, it would be something that is aimed to assure the viewer about the kind of reliable functionality and durability of those systems. We try to subvert that um, and we try to bring back into the visual equation the violence that those structures allow for. And with the infrastructures, specifically with infrastructural horror, what we found out is one of the most effective ways of conveying this infrastructural horror is the scale of infrastructure. The vastness of uh, infrastructure allows for this feeling of sublime when you're experiencing, let's say, an oil rig or a mining site that then could be exploited to develop further those ideas of core environments that it allows. I mean, obviously, another strategy that exists out there and what we've seen since the beginning of the Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine is people replacing materials that are travel through these infrastructures and are being at the core of these infrastructures. Like, for instance, replacing oil with blood was one of the repetitive strategies in the visual culture since uh, February 2022. So we imagine kind of our work also to be part of this movement right now, of this kind of uh, visual movement, to think through the politics of infrastructure in that way. And uh, to, to add to that, uh, Anna gave the example of the concentrations of power. I, I really love this. Once we find the case of a very huge uh, power line tower in uh, Crimea, it was a power line tower that was constructed in the village for only 2,000 people. And the power line tower was able to rotate. It was a step-down electricity substation. And the amount of financial resources invested in the construction of this substation in the uh, very, very small village really looked like an out-of-scale concentration of power. There was just too, too much power in the middle of nowhere, basically. Uh, this very, the concentrations of power, and especially if they seem to be out-of-scale in the environment, themselves functioning as evidence or a trace. And by locating this, this tower, we eventually find a few kilometers away a military, Russian military base. If we step it up a little bit more, then upon looking on the energy grip of the state, these traces can be made sense of, and they can expose larger specific logic. And uh, on the other hand, also with the very nature of uh, power, if you want to have an electricity of a higher voltage, you just need electricity infrastructures that would be capable of transmitting higher voltage powers. And on the very basic level, it means that there needs to be a substation, step-up substation, step-down substation. It creates a chain of all kinds of infrastructures that themselves function as material traces, uh, the embodiments of basically crimes. And uh, to give you another example... The high power uh, transmission lines have been dismantled, disassembled between Lithuania and Belarus. And there used to be the highest capacity transmission lines in Europe, but uh, they have been disassembled. And uh, what turns out is that Belarus appears to be infrastructurally separated from Europe. And the process has happened within the last uh, 
three, four years. So the infrastructure processes, they are really not static and they're really, really dynamic. And it's all about how the power is managed and then the infrastructures come later to allow basically for, for the process. I guess at this point, two questions. So remaining would be, first of all, you to pass on the methodologies that you use in your investigations and build resistance by doing that. Um, and I, I was wondering if you've witnessed the cutting of cords by ways of your suggestion already in practice. And another thing I would like to open as we're nearing the end of our conversation is why it's so important to create this. And again, for lack of a better term, new discourse, new outlook, new conceptual framing of this entire subject, because so far the discourse has been led by ex-colonial powers who operate through negotiations with other colonial powers like Russia, as Mativienko writes, it goes along two vectors, one being this inter-imperial vector operating through negotiations between the colonial powers, and the other one being the colonial imperial vector operating through terror that excludes communication. She writes, the success of negotiations between imperial powers is achieved through the success of colonial terror. And until a year ago, I guess... It was clear before that what was happening in Syria and Chechnya, all these other places. But I guess in with the war in Ukraine through, through this manifestation of the people's will to resist, it wasn't as easy for this conventional method of cooperation between empires to continue using smaller nations as space for negotiations between them. Sorry, I got a little carried away in my rhetoric there. But I hope it was clear what I was trying to ask. Yeah, no, um, thank you. I mean, it's a very important question, right? So I'm going to start with the first one first and then go into this uh, new discourse dimension. In regards to kind of new method and the kind of spreading of new method. And uh, so first, working on this project has been extremely surreal in many dimensions. First of all, because we're talking about um, power outages and Russian bombing of civilian infrastructure in Syria, as in Russia was bombing specifically electricity infrastructure in Syria. And while we're working on this, one of our collaborators is based in Ukraine, Eduard Marotrobias. He's a CGI artist that we worked with. Right in the middle of us working on this, about this in Syria, the same situation started happening in Ukraine, and it was extremely surreal the way Edward had to deal with outages uh, to continue <laughs> working on the graphics while making those graphics about Syria. It was an insane temporal warp and quite a surreal mo moment. But then another surreal moment came, more related to your question, is at, so at some point, Ukrainian military started bombing Russian electricity substations. And we couldn't believe ourselves because we were kind of half a year into the project we're quite a bit scared of the risks that it presents, as in, obviously, we verify all the information we're gathering very carefully, but still, there's this kind of anxiousness that happens in the process of what if we miscalculated, or if we geolocated stuff incorrectly, or etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
And then there were several operations carried out by Ukrainian militaries against uh, Russian electricity substations that verified <laughs> the information that we were gathering. So that was an extremely surreal moment that actually showed in practice that what we were discussing is extremely important and relevant, in fact, to what's happening right now. So yeah, as you probably know, we've been organizing these workshops to explain the methodology behind this open source investigation. And we're now working on this kind of more hands-on publication for the actual on-the-ground resistance to help make the skills more practical. So this is, uh, yeah, on the one hand. <laughs> and then in regards to, I don't know, wait, maybe uh, Mark has uh, to add something to this question before we go into um, the next one. I mean, we can go into the next one and uh, I'll just let you. Okay. <laughs> okay, then in regards to the new discourse, I think, I mean, as you've probably already heard what Mark was saying about the contract, for us it was very important to talk about one of the core ideas why we chose demonology is to describe why it is impossible to negotiate with Russia in a most visceral, <laughs> down-to-earth, understandable way possible. And, and if you watch the film, the effect, the emotional landscape that you feel after watching it, hopefully, which is this kind of feeling of claustrophobic feeling of suffocation, of something that is like, you kind of want to shake fr from you, like there is a certain uncanniness that stays with you, at least hopefully, <laughs> for five minutes after watching it. And this is also what we see when we like do screenings and we are in the same room with other people. Like there is a sort of silence happening after, and the film ends. So this very visceral reaction of your body to that is what we want you to kind of get out of this film. And this reaction is what we hope will prevent people from voicing opinions and discussions about forcing Ukraine into negotiations with Russia. And this position that we have comes from the research that already exists there about Russian invasion in Syria and how Russia used peace talks and brokering peace talks to then um, agree with the opposition forces. I'm talking now about secular opposition forces, right? I'm not talking about any kind of Islamist groups. It's, uh, it was a legitimate opposition that was forced to take arms because of the Assad crackdown on them, very violent, that killed a lot of people. So Russia told them that, okay, I'm going to guarantee you peace talks with the Assad regime so then you can like negotiate less violence, etc., etc. Opposition forces agreed. The first thing Russia did is took the weapons from them, came to those areas and killed everyone. And then this was one of the key moments that brought Russia in its victory over the um, Syrian opposition. And this is why Assad regime is still in power in Syria to a major extent. So witnessing this <laughs> extremely well-studied topic, especially in military research, and seeing how today people voice opinions about Ukraine having to start peace talks with Russia, the only legitimate response on our side is to try and uh, think why, in the first place, this idea keeps occurring again and again and again. Why there is this idea of peace talks with Russia? And um, one of the points that came up during our work is there's this certain, certain humanistic believer and humanistic framework that is also shared by the human rights law and uh, the way those 
frameworks approach uh, war and uh, violence during the war. And those frameworks tend to think about violence as the sort of exception to the rule, as something that happens not at the core of the system, it's not planned, it's on the part of the how the process is going. It is an exception that can be treated on a case-to-case basis and addressed on a case-to-case basis. Uh, we wanted to flip this perspe- perspective. We wanted uh, viewers to think about Russia and Russian colonialism as a structure that operates on violence, that has violence as an integral part of its design, without which it is impossible. It doesn't make sense to prosecute Russia on a case-by-case basis, because the very idea of the structure is violence. Um, Mark, I'm sure you have a lot (laughs) to add to my really bad uh, recap of no, it was perfect. I think I will just also quickly like share my thoughts on this. So as Anna explained, demons are not the figures you negotiate with. What our work focuses on rather is that we also take it from demonology, from monster studies, that all monsters, all demons, they have their own weak spots. And this is what the work is trying to focus more. For example, you know, from the tales, if you dip your sword in some poison, uh, then you can defeat a specific monster more effectively. And this is what the film is trying to do, rather. But not to forget the very core aspect, even if you have this sword, which is dipped in poison, you still have to swing it in a proper way, and you still have to actually engage in a fight, and you still have to defeat the monster of the demon. Just knowing the spell won't dispel it, but it will make the whole job slightly easier. Thank you for providing this methodology and this whole new conceptual framework. I guess that's the term I'm sticking with now to shift how we think about this. And thank you for building the tools for resistance. I were running out of time, but I would love to hear just, I guess, some final thoughts from you. Looking to the future and being hopeful and also relating to the way you conceptualize this. My last question is, if the demon were successfully cut out, how can one or would one or does one recover from being possessed? Uh, if one stays alive, it's uh, already great. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess one of the obvious examples would be like to separate yourself as much as possible and find alliances outside of this kind of uh, dominant geopolitical powers. Uh, because also what you don't want to do is to switch from one to another. So I think those kind of moments are... Uh, extremely powerful because they allow for those new alliances to form. I mean, they don't allow, right? We we can't talk about this as an opportunity. It's a catastrophe. It's a disaster. But what it forces, what this disaster forces is um, this kind of new networks of connection. I think what is kind of the most dangerous thing that can happen is after Ukrainian victory, Russia, as it is now, will be normalized again. And I find it, and I'm sure Mark also does find it, extremely chilling and concerning. And uh, despite the kind of uh, European posture against uh, Russian expansion, countries like Norway, for instance, like Norway signed a deal with Russia 
basically bought from Russia a right to extract oil from the territories in the Arctic that it shares with Russia. This deal is still in place, for instance. So there are these kind of small bits and pieces everywhere that have a lot of potential to then recombine back into the same type of negotiations and normalization that we have witnessed before. And this I, I find very dangerous. I mean, if we talk about actual demonic possession, this is very interesting because as we found out with Mark in the kind of medieval demonology, not like contemporary etiology, but medieval demonology, demons uh, were understood as extremely material entities. It was something more, a bit more conceptual and eerie, obviously, but along the lines of food poisoning, let's say. Demon would be located as this kind of material entity in a specific limb or part of your body. So then one of the tasks of the exorcist was to locate the demon in the specific limb or your body part, and then by chanting this body part with the other texts that would be uh, recited as a part of the exorcist process, then the demon would be exorcised from this body part, and you would have to kind of get it out either with a discharge or it would literally materially get out of your body. So then medieval demonology actually knows cases of people that would get rid of demons and um, go on with their lives, let's say. It is interesting to think about this potential future of a country outside of this imposed uh, power structure. And I think maybe actually we can think through the like Eastern European context, right? And think through the countries that are now independent from Russia or from Russian occupation, Russian colonialism. We can definitely imagine Ukraine regaining its sovereignty, like full sovereignty, I mean, also including Crimea in the east of Ukraine, and existing in a similar way to, let's say, Poland, right, or Lithuania. There are ways to think about those geographies existing free of this infrastructural power. Yeah, I don't know. Mark, what do you think? I really like this uh, part about possession being a kid to food poisoning, because it's really, in the Middle Ages, in the books, they would be described as the demon can enter your body through the mouse, for example. And this glimpses onto a larger dynamic is that you basically need to know what the demon is capable of and what are the ways it can enter your body, which is important. And then, but of course, it's not going to be just like swallowing something like in, in the Middle Ages, that would be a super high tech, very material quartz uh, transmitting power. And then the methodology of resisting to this would differ specifically from demon to demon, because it's also important to know that if you're trying to exercise a demon without knowing which specific demon it is, in most cases, that would be lethal to the possessed person and the demon would not would not be expelled. So as we are dealing more and more like with this demon discourse, maybe what we need as a, as an exorcist eventually, just as a person who is in possession of the methodologies of, or dealing with demons or expelling them. Yeah. Well, I think you're you're doing a great job providing those exorcist methodologies yourselves. I'd like to thank you both so much for your time and this amazing conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you Anna and Mark, and thanks so much for listening, everyone. Next week, I'll be joined by academic, author, and publisher Anthony Downey, professor of visual culture in the Middle East and North Africa at Birmingham City University in the UK. 
to discuss topics related to AI, computer vision, drones, and lethal autonomous weapon systems. So I really hope you'll be joining us. Scale is a podcast series hosted by myself, Nea Berger. It's curated by Yanis Falkenjansha, and it's produced by Marcela Ukretic for the Axioma Institute for Contemporary Art. The series is part of the 14th edition of the Tactics and Practice Discursive Program, which was made possible by CONS, Platform for Contemporary Investigative Art. For more information on the context, participants and partners involved, see the links in the description. This episode was recorded and edited by yours truly and mixed by Stash Kramar. The music was created by the amazing Kasper Torkar. You're welcome to visit axioma.org where you'll find a wealth of free content. And if you like what we do, consider supporting us on Patreon or by making a donation, but no pressure. That's all for this episode. Greetings from Ljubljana and Nasvidenje. Tactics and Practice Podcasts.